marriage here and every other person aspiring to marriage. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing that that is. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. And we pray that you would speak to us by your word. Give us understanding. Give us ears to hear. Excite us by your word. Awaken us. Quicken us. Lord, deliver us from hearing your word as if it's just routine. Many people who love you and don't have your word in their language. And there are many people killed for this book. But in your kindness, you have allowed us to have full access to it. In many translations and through many devices. And if we're not careful, we can treat it as a common thing. Keep us from doing that. Give us a special regard for your word. Give us an eagerness to hear it. And grant that we might be made glad in what we discover here. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are here this morning, uh, well, you are here this morning. <laughs> Since you're here this morning, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not sure I'm going to make it through the sermon with stars like that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you're here for the first time this morning, you've joined us near the beginning of a new sermon series that we have called Being the Church. Uh, and the reason that we're doing the sermon series is because as a new church, it's, it's generally helpful to do refreshers, remind people of the basic doctrines uh, of the scripture, including the doctrine of the church. But also because we are a pretty diverse church family with people who are coming from a lot of different church backgrounds and uh, coming from different backgrounds. They not only have different experiences, but, but different understandings of how the church is to operate and how it's organized. And so it's good for us for the sake of common understanding and unity uh, to sort of go through this teaching together. And of course, some of you have questions about things because you've, for example, not before been in a Baptist church or not before been in a congregational church, and you're wanting to know more about what that means and, and what does that look like. And so we began this series with a hope of, of sort of addressing all those things and to give us from the Bible a, a, a basic but good ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a $5 fancy word that just simply means teaching of the church, what the Bible teaches about the church. And so far, we've said two basic things about the, the church from the scripture. First, we've said that the, the church is basically the people of God. And by people of God, we mean God's chosen people in God's chosen place on God's chosen program. That from Genesis to Revelation, what God has been up to is precisely that, collecting the people for himself, getting them to the place where he wants them, uh, and along the way, having them carry out his program or mission. Uh, so the church is a missionary community. The second thing that we've said in our second sermon is that the church is also the spiritual body of Christ expressed in visible local congregations where every Christian is an indispensable member of Jesus' body. So not only are we a group of people gathered together from every tribe and language and nation and background, we are more than just the assembly of a bunch of individual random folks. We are actually part of each other. 
because we are part of Jesus' body. Each and every one of us being a member of his body, being indispensable to the body in whom he lives by his spirit. So God gathers the people and God joins every person he gathers to the body of his son. So this morning, we want to add a third truth from the scripture to our sort of basic biblical healthy ecclesiology. And we might put it this way. That Jesus Christ is the sole or only and sufficient, means he's enough, he's the sole and sufficient head of the church, his body. So if all of us are various parts of his body, various members of his body, there's only one who's the head, and that's Jesus. And what we want to think about is what that means. And to do that, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. For context, I'm going to read verses 15 to 23, but we're really going to camp out on verses 21 to 23. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, in this part of the letter to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul is is really summarizing his prayers for the church. And we won't consider the prayer in detail, but it's helpful to recognize that the main idea in this prayer, especially as it relates to Jesus, he's praying that the Ephesians would know the power of God in their lives. That's what we see in verses 15 to 18. He wants him to live in God's power. And he says now three things about the Lord Jesus as it relates to God's power. Number one, God worked his, notice how he phrases this in verse 19, his immeasurably great power in Jesus when he raised Jesus from the dead. And that same power is at work in those of us who believe. Number two, God the Father then not only raised Jesus from the dead, but he has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all powers and rulers and authorities. 
And number three, God the Father gave Jesus' head then over all things to the church. So what we have here is a summary of Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and what the theologians call his session, his ruling in heaven. So in effect, what Paul is praying is the gospel. Right? That word gospel literally means good news. It's the good news to sinners about what God through his son Jesus has done for us to rescue us from our sin and from the penalty of sin. Specifically, God sent his son Jesus Christ to obey all of God's commands. He does this so that we would have, through faith in Jesus, a perfect righteousness before God, without which we cannot see God. And not only that, God also sent his son Jesus to to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus was being punished in our place. Again, God does this and Jesus voluntarily does this to be the one who takes away our sins from us. So he provides us righteousness while at the same time taking away our sins. And God raised Jesus from the dead three days later, three days after Jesus dies on the cross, so that Jesus becomes our victory now over death and the grave, and so that we have a guarantee of eternal life in his resurrection. Now, God calls men and women, boys and girls, everywhere to do two things. To repent of their sins, That means to turn away from their sin and to turn back to God and to put their complete faith, their complete trust, their complete dependence on Jesus Christ as the only one who does those three things, who provides righteousness before God, who takes away our sin and who guarantees us eternal life. God calls every creature to repent of sin and trust in Jesus that we might have the blessings of this good news, forgiveness of sins, a new heart, eternal life, righteousness with God forever in his kingdom. Now, what we go on to say in the rest of this sermon about Jesus being the head of the church, those things only benefit you if, in fact, you first convert from unbelief And put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We pray that you would do that right now. We pray that you would stick around after the service and talk to us if you have questions about that. We pray that you would take a copy of the Bible and read the Bible and and consider this message and, and put your faith in this Christ. He is worthy of your love. So I have two questions this morning as we turn to the key verses 21 to 23. The first question is this. What does it mean to say Jesus is the head of the church? What does it mean to say that Jesus is the head of the church? Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning answering that question. Don't panic. Number two, how should the church respond to the fact that Jesus is the head? How should the church then respond to the fact that Jesus is the head. First question, 
What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the head of this church? I want to suggest to you that calling Jesus the head of the church means at least five things. Number one, it means that Jesus rules universally. Jesus rules universally. Notice the contrast between verse 21 and verse 22 of Ephesians 1. On the one hand, in verse 21, Jesus is seated at God's right hand, notice, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's Jesus's exaltation above all things. But now notice the contrast in verse 22, where he says, and he, God the Father, put all things under his, Jesus's feet. That is the subjection or the humiliation of all things beneath Jesus. See the contrast. So Jesus is exalted above all things and all things are lowered beneath him. Verse 22 also says Jesus is head over all things. Now that idea of head is not simply that he is above all things in preeminence and honor. That's true also. We've already seen that in verse 21. The idea of head here is adding something now. It is saying that Jesus is the ruler of all things. He has sovereign authority over all things. Every single thing that exists. Now, keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 1. About the same time that Paul wrote Ephesians, he wrote another letter, a companion letter, called Colossians. So keep your finger in Ephesians. Turn to your right a couple of pages, and you'll be in Colossians. And, and, and Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 states this really clearly. The Apostle Paul writes there in Colossians chapter 10, chapter 2, excuse me, verse 10, at the end of that verse, he first says, you have been filled in him, then he describes who the him is, who is the head of all rule and authority. The Greek there is emphatic, puts Jesus first. We might say Jesus is emphatically the ruler of the universe. When I was a little boy, there was a cartoon called Masters of the Universe. Got He-Man and She-Ra and all these masters of the universe. You know, they would seem to be getting defeated and He-Man would show up and, you know, he'd get all big chested on them and win the battle. Well, the Bible does not have masters, plural, of the universe. It has one master of the universe, and that is, that is Jesus. And, and listen, he ain't got no contenders. He ain't got nobody who seems to be winning for a little while. He is far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. He is greater than anything that is now or anything that will ever come. This is what it means for him to be head. There is no place where his rule is not real and active and unchallenged. Name a thing, anything, it's beneath Jesus' feet. Name a thing from the past or imagine a thing in the future, it's beneath Jesus' feet. Name your name, it is beneath Jesus' feet. Feet. 
and he is far above us all. And this is why, beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, and you have not yet obeyed the gospel and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is why you will be judged guilty at the day of judgment and sentenced to God's judgment in hell. It's because you are living in rebellion to Christ's rule. Jesus will either be head of your life now for your salvation, or he'll be the head of your trial then for your condemnation. But he will be head. It's whether or not we will acknowledge him and love him as such. So the first thing to see is that to say that Jesus is head of the body and the head of the church is that he is ruler of all things. The second thing to see is that as head, Jesus is a gift to the church. You see that there in verse 22? God the Father gave him, gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Again, the emphasis in the original is, is on Jesus. Literally, it says, him he gave. Nobody else, no other names, not, not some other head, but Jesus. He alone, he solely and sufficiently is the head of the body. Now, how many of you know the Father only gives excellent gifts? That's what James says in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God only gives good and perfect gifts. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where the Apostle Paul wanders out loud, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give us every good thing? Now, what we should think about is the implication of God giving his son to be head to the church. It's a free gift. We receive not only Jesus as Savior and Lord, but we receive him as head, the head who is ruler over every single thing. Visible and invisible in the life to come and now. Maybe an illustration helps. In the days of kings and monarchs, marriages were often arranged. They were not often marriages of, of love and romance. They were normally marriages of political convenience and expedience. Two kings, one with a son, another with a daughter, would, would sort of recognize that maybe if we married our children off, then we could form an alliance between our two kingdoms and uh, have better protection together and expand our territory and our lands. And maybe the, the prince would have certain lands that were deeded to him and the princess might have certain things that were deeded to her. And together now they, they form a strengthening of, of, of the kingdoms and a, and a union that is meant for protection and, and the sharing of all the riches of land and armies and power that the two kingdoms represented. Something like this happens when Jesus becomes the head of the church. Everything he rules becomes part of the church's possession. The only difference is we have nothing to bring to it. 
We not princesses with no lands. We not rulers with no armies. We were beggars. We were wandering the street as orphans. And yet we have now married into this kingdom through faith in Jesus, where our head, the bridegroom, is the ruler of all things. And that's what makes the gift so extraordinary. For nothing in return. The Father gives us the head of all rule and authority. So Jesus should be gladly received as the head of the church. He should at all times be gladly celebrated uh, and treasured as the greatest gift God's ever given to the church. And more than that, we, the church, we should not tremble in fear because of any earthly rule or power or authority or dominion. We should not tremble or fear even because of any spiritual dominion or rule or authority because Jesus is the head of them all and they're all far beneath him. This is for our joy. This is for our confidence. But let me give you a third thing. As head, when we say Jesus is head, we mean that he and the church are united as one. Verse 23 explains this connection. He is head over all things to the church, his body. Get the image. We talked about it a little bit last week, but get the image. Jesus Christ is connected to the church the way a head is connected to the body. Now, now one thing about a, a head's connection to the body is that life depends on it. There are other images in the Bible that teach us the same thing. So in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the... Right, the only way we live is that the branches abide in the vine. The same idea is present here. We are the members of the body, we are collectively his body, but we are joined to the head, which is the nerve center, which is the command center, from which the body gets its life and gets its instructions. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, thinking on this idea. He says, the essential truth about the body is that it is not a number of loose parts which are somehow or other attached or joined to one another. The marvel of the body is that all the parts are really one, that they are in an organic, essential, and vital unity. To put the point crudely, my fingers are not joined to the palm of my hand loosely. They are not simply tied on. It is a living connection. It is a vital connection. There is a sense in which you cannot tell me exactly where the palm ends and the fingers begin. They are all, they are parts of one another. The connection is intimate and organic and vital and living. So it is with us. We are parts that are joined together, not like spare parts on Frankenstein's body, but like parts that blend together as one seamless whole, deriving its life from its head, who too is connected to us in this vital, organic, inseparable whole, whose life extends into us to every extremity. 
So that just that, as it is with our physical bodies, the, the same life that's at the tip of our fingers is the life that courses through the whole of our body. So it is with Jesus. His life courses to the furthest extremities such that the fullness of life that is at the fingertips of the body of Christ is the same life that is essentially in the head itself. So we are united to him. We find our life as part of the body in our connection with the head. Christianity is not like the tale of the headless horseman. But it's also not like those science fiction movies you sometimes see where people have a head in a jar and the head's still alive but it has no body. Christianity is head plus body never torn apart. And what's interesting is I think we live in a day and age where, where people are sometimes trying to separate head and body in some really unwise ways. Three ways at least. First, there are some, who, some Christians who prefer to decapitate the church. They love the community of the church. They love to serve with people in the church. They love to get together with the saints, but they don't want Jesus to tell them what to do as their head. That's decapitated Christianity. But then there's also decorpulated Christianity. Getting fancy now. Corpus is just a word that means body. And decorpulated are those folks who, they love the head. They love Jesus. They want to be with Jesus and intimate with Jesus, but they don't want to have nothing to do with Christian folk. They don't want to have nothing to do with the body. So they cut the body off and keep the head. So they think. And then there's a third group. A Christian can lose connection to Jesus another way. That's by turning to legalistic rules in the Christian life. Did you know that? Keep your finger in Ephesians 1. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 again. And Paul says a rather interesting thing in Colossians 2 beginning in verse 16. Colossians 2 verses 16 to 19. This is what the apostle says. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So I'm going to Fogo after this. I don't want to hear from none of y'all. <laughs> therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are people who are saying to be Christians, you got to keep certain dietary laws or you got to observe this or that religious holiday. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, that's an interesting word, it's the word soma, it means body. The substance of the things, the, the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, strict rules, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, notice, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Biblically, another way, to be disconnected from the head is to try to pursue the Christian life in legalistic terms. Don't taste, don't touch, don't chew. 
rather than remaining in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, that life-giving, freedom-giving grace that we have received through faith in the one who has already obeyed all the rules and is our righteousness. None of these decapitated, decorpulated, or legalistic Christianity is biblical Christianity. Neither of these gives us the life of joy and strength that we want as Christians. We, we only get that joy, that life, and that strength as we remain connected to our head, Jesus Christ. I love the way one commentator put it. He says, Jesus is really, though spiritually, the church's head. His life is her life. She shares his crucifixion and his consequent glory. He possesses everything, his fellowship with the Father, his fullness of the Spirit, and his glorified manhood, not merely for himself, but for her who has a membership of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. All that Jesus is is given to us. But notice the fourth thing. To say that Jesus is head of the body means that Jesus fills the church and the universe. Verse 23 says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a difficult phrase to translate in two ways we could go about it. Some people take it to mean that the church, his body, fills Jesus. So the church is the substance, if you will, that, that fills up Jesus. They say that in some sense, Jesus is incomplete without the church, without his body. There's one sense in which that's correct, and I think only in one sense. Christ came into the world to purchase the church, his bride. He did not come to make salvation possible. He came to make salvation actual. So that it is true to say that if there were no church, then Christ's mission would be unfulfilled. And since the body is is Christ, then, then, then the body fills Christ in that way. But I don't think that's the best way to read that text. I think a second way is better. The second check says, the second way says that Jesus, um, the church is not what fills Jesus, the church is what contains Jesus. You might think of the church as a kind of bucket, if you will, that holds the the life of Christ in itself. The church becomes the place where Jesus' fullness is most experienced. I think this is the view of this passage because other passages from Paul basically say this. Ephesians, look over in chapter 3, verse 19. Where there Paul writing about the Lord says that he wants to, he's praying again. He wants the Ephesians to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Or chapter 4 verse 10. Paul is talking about Christ's descent in verse 9 and his ascension in verse 10. It says, he who descended is the one who also ascended Far above the heavens, why? That he might fill all things. So Christ's filling is not just in the church, but it's in the whole universe. He fills all things. Or look with me one more time in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Where Paul is meditating on this very idea. He says it very clearly. For in him, that is Jesus, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What that means is that all of Godness is in Jesus. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So all of God, all of deity is in Jesus and Jesus is in us. The fullness of God is in Christ, and the fullness of Christ is in the church. This is what I think Peter means in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Now, there are many people who twist that scripture and want to say that we're little gods and things of that sort. No, beloved, there's only one God. But the mystery is this, he lives in us. He fills us. And this is what I think Paul means when he says he no longer lives, but, but Christ lives in him. You should spend all day today sitting with this. That the fullness of God is in Christ and the fullness of Christ is in you. You ain't got nothing better to think about today. Dick Lucas, preacher in England, says this, all that the word deity means is now dwelling. Think for a moment of what deity means to the Christian mind. And then he gives a a number of titles from the scripture. It means the creator who is blessed forever. It means the great I am. It means the only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord Lord of Lord, who alone has immortality. That's who's living in you. That's who's filling out the church. That's who's dwelling in us and through us and giving us life. Another commentator says this, the church is intended to be a full expression of him by being filled by him whose purpose it is to fill everything there is. You know what my problem is? No, not that one. My big problem is I don't live, think, feel, and act as if the fullness of God lives in me and in our church. That's my big problem. What about you? Do you live and think and feel and act and plan and try and give yourself to whatever it is as if it's true that God lives in you to the full and lives in our church to the full? (laughs) Our challenge isn't that we believe too much. Our challenge is we often believe too little. Our challenge is not that we're carried away with some fantasy. Our our challenge is we haven't been gripped by the mystery that Christ is in us and we are alive through him. And that's all of us as his church. He ain't just a little bit in us. His fullness lives in us. All that he is is at work in us. All that he could ever be has come to us. All that he will ever be is now ours in the church because the church, his body, is the fullness of his presence in the universe. My God. 
if the fullness of God lives in us through Jesus Christ, our head, then what person is there that we cannot evangelize? If the, if the fullness of God through Jesus Christ, our head, lives in us, what sin is there that we cannot break? If, if the fullness of God in Jesus Christ in our head is in us, the church, what effort is there that we cannot make? If the fullness of God is in us, the body of Christ, his church, because Jesus is our head, who in the world can be greater than the one who is in us? This changes everything. This changes everything. Because he lives in us. We are the fullness of his life in the world. Number five. To say that Jesus is head of the body is to say that Jesus nourishes us and cherishes us and produces in us growth. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 now, verses 15 and 16. We considered this text a bit last week, but now I just want to, we were thinking about the body last week, now I just want to pull out the, what it says about the head. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when it, each part is working properly, notice, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here's the picture. We are an unusual kind of body where all the parts speak. We speak the truth, and we do it in love. And as we do so, we grow up into the head, which means we grow to be more and more like Jesus. The head is the source of life in the church. And the one thing that's true about all living creatures is that they grow. And so we grow as long as we are attached to the head. Receiving truth and love, we're growing things. Colossians 2 verse 19, the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. That's a better growth than your and my self-effort. That's a better growth than social control and behavioral modification. That's a growth from God. That's a spiritual growth. That's spiritual life. That's the kind of growth that makes us the creatures we were meant to be in Christ. Why does he do this? It's because he cherishes us. Ephesians chapter 5, in that passage on marriage, consider verse 25 and following again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Now notice he's addressing husbands, but he's talking about Jesus. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And I love this part. 
The reason he sacrifices, the reason he washes, verse 24, 27, excuse me, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is free. This ain't in the sermon. Brothers who are married, it is not selfish to sacrifice yourself for your wife in order that you receive back to yourself a better wife. You see how this works. Jesus gives himself up for her. He loves her. He serves her. He washes her in the water of the word. Verse 27, so that he may receive to himself, so that he may present to himself a bride more radiant, more spotless, more beautiful than when he found her dirty in her sin. That's the pattern for the husband. You give yourself. I give myself. I love my wife. I serve my wife. I wash her in the water of the word. And part of the motivation that Christy going to come back to me. Brilliant. Beautiful. Shining. My Lord. I'm motivated. I don't care about the rest of y'all. I'm motivated, brother. But the text goes on. Let's get back to the text. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives, notice, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but we're talking about Jesus in the church, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Beloved, Jesus didn't save you grudgingly. All right, Father, I'm going to go on down in. I'm going to get them. I don't want to, but I'm going to save them. It's not how he did it. The Father says, I want a people. Jesus says, ooh, 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 send me. Send me. Because these you've given to me, I love, I cherish, I, I, I want to have as my own to, to treasure and to treat in such a way that they just get more and more radiant, more and more beautiful, more and more wonderful, and I just get more and more joy out of them. Beloved, Jesus didn't save you grudgingly. He saved you gladly. He gave himself willingly, eagerly. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the agony. And that was, that was you, beloved, the church. You are the apple of God's eye. And with great joy, our Savior gave himself for you and me because he cherishes us and wishes to nourish us and to cause us to grow in all that is glorious and good. Now, as long as we're connected to the head, we will grow as God intends us to grow. If you're looking to grow, separate it from the body or the head, you will be frustrated in your efforts. The best way to grow then is to be a healthy, functioning part of the body of Christ, nourished by the head, cherished cherished by the head, stimulated to grow by the head. There's no other way to grow. So, let's summarize. To say that Jesus is the head of the church means at least five things. As head, Jesus is ruler of all things. Jesus is a gift 
from the Father to the church. Jesus is forever connected to the body, the church, from which we get our life. Jesus fills the church and all things, and Jesus causes the church to grow. So real quickly then, how should the church respond to the fact that Jesus is its head? Let me give you three quick things. Number one, we should think rightly. We should think rightly. Remember the context in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying And his prayers for the church and for us, he's praying that they may have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, verse 17. He's asking that their eyes, uh, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the hope and the riches that they have in Christ, verse 18. He wants them to see the world as it really is when you are united to Jesus and participating in the Lord's finished work. You go, well, okay, what does that mean? Here's how I think this might work. We must learn to think of ourselves, our, our little humble, unworthy, insignificant Christian selves, as we truly are. A people who are essential and vital to the fullness of the body of Christ in the universe. We we must learn to think of ourselves not fundamentally as individuals, but fundamentally as body parts, fundamentally as people who derive their life from God himself, fundamentally as people who, who are in the world in order to display the fullness of the glory of God in his people. We must be reoriented away from the assessment of our individual selves toward the recognition of our collective selves as God's body. As God's body, we must think rightly about ourselves. Number two, we must then go on to live powerfully. To live powerfully. Again, remember the context. Paul is literally praying that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Verse 19, Ephesians 1. He's praying that we would see God's power work in us. Why does he want that? Why should we want that? Well, it's so that the church would not be puny and weak and ineffective. He he wants this so that the church would abound in energy and zeal and confidence and, and godly ambition. He wants the church stirred by the knowledge of God's power in them to attempt great things for our great God. Sit with this, beloved. Sit with it today, really. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. Resurrection power in God's people, the church. Grasp the significance of that. Exercise that power in you 
As a Christian, the life of Christ is, is in us. We, we got to realize this and begin to, to use it and to exercise it. One of the things that should never be seen in the body of Christ, I, I'm speaking here sweepingly, but that's all right. Y'all can qualify it later. One of the things that should never be seen in the body of Christ is a lack of spiritual ambition. probably shouldn't say this because it's Father's Day and I get tired of fathers getting beat up on Father's Day. So let me just say to men in general. Brothers, where's your ambition? Where's your godly desire? Where's your passion? I'm saying this again, not to beat up on you, but because the power of God is in you. And yet, how many of us have conversation after conversation with brother after brother who just seems to be ho-hum about life? Ain't trying nothing, ain't doing nothing, ain't growing nothing, ain't seeking nothing, ain't providing nothing? Won't step to a sister and ask her out? No, I ain't beating up on the brothers. No, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I know the sisters appreciate that, but I'm not looking for a cheap laugh. I, I mean, but how are you going to be married if you won't ask her out? Won't apply for the next job? Won't, won't take the class to get certified? Now, I know that don't apply to all of y'all because I know the brothers who are, who are seeking to do better and to grow. And I, I praise God for you, but it applies to some of us. Sisters running past us. Better education, better jobs, more income. Praise God for them. Don't be holding them back. Don't, don't come to this text talking about headship and stuff like that. I'm the man when well, you won't step up. Sisters, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that I've been giving me, but women for years. You run hard after Christ. Run as hard as you can after Christ. Look to your left. Look to your right. Marry a brother who's keeping up with you. If he's falling behind, you keep running. You'd be like Forrest Gump, man. Just... What am I saying? We should be living with great power because his power is at work in us and he is filling us as his body. Let's attempt great things. And when I said of men, if if that applies to you as a sister, you don't get no, that applies to you as a sister too. Moving on, number three. Think rightly, live powerfully. Number three, submit entirely. The body goes wherever the head goes. And all you ever need to do is see a toddler learning to walk to understand this. Because they got big old heads and toothpick legs. And sometimes the head get going and the body be trying to stay back there. But they be like, they got to go with the head. I know some of y'all going to be talking about my head this afternoon. I want you to know the Lord see y'all. The body goes wherever the head goes. We can have the body go in one direction and the head go in another direction. Whatever the head directs, the body is meant to submit to. We get this exact application 
In Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I know some of y'all want to sort of pick apart submission and marital roles. That ain't this sermon. We'll do that another time. The point here is he's stressing the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is simply a small picture of that relationship. The point here is, is that the church should be submitted to her head, Christ. Paul makes it clear. That's our response to his headship. Verse 23 to 24, the church submits to Christ. Jesus is the sole and sufficient head of the body and the responsibility of the body is to Order itself under him, hupotasso, submit beneath him. We do that by obeying his word and the power of his spirit. Our happiness depends on our humility, our humbleness enough to get beneath Jesus as his body and to obey him. So, final question as we close. Is there any area of your life, any area of our life as a church that needs to be brought more fully beneath Christ as our head to go where he says go when he says go? The doctrine of the church aims to do two things, exalt Jesus above all things and order the church under his loving leadership. If we would be a healthy church, we must be an obedient body living under God's word. That's how Christ exercises his lordship. And we can do that because Christ is in us in all of his power and his fullness. May the Lord give us grace to live this way until we finally see our head face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for this indescribable gift that you would give your son to us, his church. That we would be his body and he would be our head and that we would gain all of our life from him. That you, Father, would live in Jesus fully, and Jesus would be the fullness that, that fills the church. And we would have your power, resurrection power, to live and to do all that you call us to live and to do. Father, help us to get this deep down into the soul of our church. Help us to get this deep down into our individual Christian souls. And help us to bring other people into this reality in saving faith. And then do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. For the glory of your name and the joy of your church we pray. Amen.